everyone, and welcome to the ULP podcast. As always, ULP stands for Ultra Low Potassium. On this show, uh, it's me, Scott Reed. Ryan Johnson. Chris Darden. Jeff Rupert. On this episode, we'll be talking about patchwork. We'll talk about the games that are available at mass merchant retailers. And we'll also have a discussion about the old game Boomtown from Livingstone Games. First, let's talk about what we've done this week in gaming. Chris, what did you do? Oh, man, I haven't played much uh, since getting back from Bubba Geek. Uh, the only game that I have played is The Three Little Pigs with my daughter and her grandmother and my son. So that's it. It's a ILO game. It's part of their series that looks like kids' books. You open it up. It's got all the components inside and the story. I own two of them, uh, Three Little Pigs and Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga's okay. Three Little Pigs is our favorite. I'm going to look into the others. Um, it's a cute little game. The gimmick in that one is you're building the houses, and then if you get the wolves, you uh, have to blow on the spinner, and the spinner spins around, and if it lands on whatever type it lands on, you blow down the, those parts of someone's house that you already chose, and you go on from there. That's pretty much it. Just been you know busy otherwise, and I got a lot of good gaming in at Bubba Geek, so that's it for me. Jeff, how about you? Uh, you, uh, you went to a Catan event, correct? Yeah, the Catan Con, Catan Con 2016. They have that here in Nashville. Uh, it's my first year going, so I showed up Saturday morning and ended up playing uh, Settlers of Nuremberg, which uh, was I thought it was a pretty cool take on the game. Uh, you basically had your traditional Settlers board on the left-hand side of the board, probably three-fourths of the board, but it was uh, German cities. And then the one space you could not go was Nuremberg. And then on the rest of the board was like a zoomed in version of Nuremberg. So you're on the traditional side, the quote unquote traditional side, you're collecting resources and you're basically delivering them to the other side. And by spending those resources on the opposite side of the board, you um, create victory points, you can trade them in for other things, that kind of thing. And instead of having a port, like a three-to-one port or that kind of thing, which there actually is on that side, taking the resources that you're gathering from the traditional side of the board and you can trade them in for victory points or uh, for various other things for different resources on the other side of the board. And when you do that, you're... The way they have it listed on the board is like you're spinning a wood and a stone for a harp, a virtual harp kind of thing. You just have a picture of the harp there. And when you do that you get gold that you can spend on other things. And along with each of those virtual resources that you're creating, there's a road listed. And on the regular side of the board, there's roads that run through, and whoever has the majority of stuff on that road, um, you have to pay a toll to. So if you trade in on something that has their road name next to it, you have to pay them a toll. Um, But you're not actually paying it. The bank is paying it. So it's kind of a, a cool little twist on traditional settlers game. Interesting. I've uh, I've owned Settlers of Nuremberg for a lot of years, and it's still in the shrink wrap because I I've never really gotten a, a group that wanted to play Settlers enough that I got much past the vanilla Settlers. Yeah, I dug it a lot. Um, I played it with a couple of the guys from Catan, and uh, so it was cool to like see their perspective on it. I don't think I think one of them had not played it either before. Really dug it. And also while I was there, they had their giant carpet games, and I walked in one day, and our our friend Morgan that works for Catan. He was there, and I walked up to him, and he's like, hey, do you know how to play this game? I'm like, yeah, I love this game. He's like, cool, can you teach these people how to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Which cracked me up, because I suck at teaching games. 
And I'm like, sure. And so he had he left. He had something else he had to go do. And so I taught his dad and his two daughters how to play uh, Downfall of Pompeii on the big carpet uh, carpet board game that they have going there. And they really dug it. And their youngest girl won. And I found out that one of the rules that I always play with is totally wrong. So I learned something in the process. So that was that was a pretty cool feeling of teaching them and watching them play as well. Cool. That sounds very neat. Ryan, what about your week? What was your week like? Uh, like Chris, I didn't get a lot played. I've been really busy. But on the way back from Bubba Geek, I got a text from a friend of mine that does a lot of thrifting. And he had uh, found two games, Kaboom and the Sneeze game. Uh, and I said, buy them. I, I think it cost me eight bucks together. They're both pretty nice condition. No, so the sneeze game is, it's there's a, a plastic guy who's got a big nose, and it looks like he's about ready to sneeze, and you're there's little platforms, and you're trying to build a house of cards on this platform. And if someone rolls something, I think there's a dice, and if they roll the sneeze, they can turn the guy, and then they can, you know, punch down on this, you know, rubber bladder, and it'll, you know, he'll kind of sneeze. And the interesting thing is it's it's been kind of interesting trying to find out how the game actually was supposed to work and looking at the old videos of the commercials and then realizing that, you know, for being a almost 50 years old, you know, there's a little bladder underneath the uh, inside the, the head that's supposed to kind of inflate a little bit, bring the head forward like a real sneeze would. Um, so I've got to figure out how to fix that and... The Kaboom game I th- is just a, a game where you're trying to really blow up a balloon and not be the one that bursts it, and it needs the balloons, of course. But it was it's kind of fun getting those old, old games like that and seeing if you can refurbish them and bring them back to life. Cool. Sounds, sounds neat. Now, moving on to our regular segments. First up, we're going to talk about Patchwork which is a 2014 game by Uwe Rosenberg from Lookout Games. Uwe is a prolific designer who designs such games as Bonanza as well as Agricola. And Jeff's going to tell us a little bit more about the game. Patchwork is a two-player game where each person has a quilt board, and throughout the game you are basically selecting from uh, three optional uh, quilt pieces to add to your board. You pay for them by spinning buttons, and each piece that you have to, uh, to select from has a button cost and a amount of spaces that you move for selecting that piece. So on your turn, you would uh, pick whichever of the three that would best fit your quilt. You spin the buttons to purchase it. So when you purchase the piece, you select how you want to fit it on your quilt. Um, you can rotate it, flip it, and decide how you want to put it there. Once it's there, you cannot move it. And uh, like I said, the each piece has a amount of spaces that you move on the board once you purchase it. You move your little marker on the board that many spaces. Every round, the person who is in last place gets to go. So you can purchase multiple pieces. If you if you plan it right, you can pur- purchase multiple pieces that will just move you, um, and you'll still be behind your opponent. So you can pick out better pieces and plan your strategy that way, that kind of thing. Along the way, as you're moving along the board, there are spaces that have single quilt pieces, and once you either land on those or pass them, you get to pick up that single quilt piece and add it to your board. So it's kind of another strategic thing to do. So if you have a piece that you want to buy that's going to help you in any way, but it's going to leave a single space on the board, you can uh, try to figure out how to get those single quilt pieces and fill in your board. Um, One person, the first person to complete a 7x7 section of their quilt uh, gets a bonus piece that is worth 7 points. And at the end of the game, once both players reach the the center or the last space on the uh, 
the game trackboard. Scoring happens, and each person counts up uh, the number of buttons they have left in their pool, and each button is worth one point. And then you get minus two points for every blank or open space left on your quilt. And add that up. So what do you think about the game, Jeff? I like it. <laughs> no, I actually... Uh, I thought it was going to be silly the first time I saw it. It just looked kind of lame. Like, I'm a big theme guy, and I'm like, making a quilt, that just seems stupid. And then I kept seeing my friends post on Twitter about it, specifically the iPad app. And so I downloaded the iPad app maybe two weeks ago, and just been playing it pretty much nonstop since then. The iPad app, you can select from your friends um, and just play, like, a game against them, or you can... I haven't actually done this. I'm not really sure if this is how it works, but uh, you can play online and against somebody and uh, get a ranked score. So you can be like number one quilt maker. Yeah, but I really like it. I've just picked it up uh, Saturday at the Catan Con here in Nashville. They had it for sale there, there. And so I picked it up and opened it up and read through the rules and just explained to you the rules. Yay. <laughs> Chris, what about you? I also like this game a lot. I started with the board game version of it, <clears throat> played it a bit, mostly with my wife. We both like it. It's a good two-player abstract type game. It plays in about 30 minutes. It fits right into that line of games, those Cosmos two-player games. It's uh, just about the same box size, a little thicker, and it really fits a, a good niche in terms of that filler space of games. Um, the app is really well done, I think. Um, you can challenge people online, like Jeff said. You can play against the AI, and you can also do that ranked play thing. I'm continually impressed by how uh, Rosenberg comes up with different types of games. You know, everything from Bonanza to Agricola to something like this, you know, which just seems outside of his normal range of what he does. But it, he pulled it off really well, and I think it works great. Yeah, now Jeff, Jeff recommended I buy this to play with my daughter. Is it pretty much just, are you, are you kind of playing solitaire against someone? Are you competing for those three quilt pieces or, or what? Yes. So you are, you're competing for those pieces. <laughs> you, you get the choice of the next three, depending on which one you buy and how much time it moves you along the track. <clears throat> you may get an opportunity to buy another one. And so you can kind of plan out little turns if you do that. It uses the mechanic from Thebes where if you are the furthest back in time, if you haven't used right. as much time as the other player, you get to go a bunch of times in a row until you are past that player and then it's their turn. So you can kind of plan out which ones you're buying and which ones you're going to make available for the other player. And um, it's also there's also a bit of a race for the 7x7 seven seven one. If you're the first to fill in a 7x7 seven seven square somewhere on the quilt, you get that 7 points. Uh, the more I play the less i think that seven by seven square is important i think it's a, a nice little bonus if you kind of fall into it but i would not go for it just because after you play for a while you start scoring a lot you know you really start to learn how the game is played and you you get your scores a, a lot higher than you did when you first started which is a good sign for a game you know that it that it does that and it's got a neat spatial element you can flip the piece around you can turn them around you can kind of do your thing and then look to see which pieces are still left because there's only so many smaller pieces and and some of them are really big and cover a lot of area, but they're awkward and just hard to fit into, you know, so you have to have somewhat of a plan going forward. So I think there's enough competition there and enough planning that you can do, but you could also just play it without paying attention, you know, and have right. a good time and just kind of play with what comes your way. Yeah, I think that's interesting, too, because I, I've often thought that you mentioned those Cosmos two player games in my collection. Those kind of end up being the games that I kind of, you know, refer to non-gamers like Balloon Cup was a big one that I mean, I, I've had tons of people play that and it doesn't really necessarily throw them into the hobby like we are. But 
that, you know, they kind of enjoy those. So, you know, I'll definitely look at getting patchwork. I almost bought it on the iPad and I, I went with the uh, Splendor app instead, but I'll probably pick that up as well. Now, Scott, does this fit any collection holes you've got? Is this, are, do you normally collect these? Uh, no, not, not especially. From what you guys have talked about it, I'm intrigued by it, and it'll probably be something I'll, I'll have a look at. Looks like it's about 25 bucks on Amazon, although it looks like it's not anything that's carried by mass merchant retailers. No, this does sound, sound very interesting and something I'd like to check out. From a collection perspective, with my finickiness on collection things, I don't necessarily see this as, as a collectible but uh, from a game perspective, I'd say this is probably something that I would, would be interested in, in getting. Uh, well, does anybody have anything else to say about Patchwork? Closing thoughts on Patchwork. I really like it. It fits that that same kind of genre that comes in those boxes. You have that two-player, quick kind of filler with a little bit of thinking and pretty easy rules. You know, easy to learn, easy to set up, and, and easy to get into. Something I would... I would call it like one of those gateway games. Like Ryan mentioned earlier, all those two-player Cosmos games seem to fit that space really well. Yeah, I'll be I'll be picking it up if, if for no other reason than to play it with my daughter. And if you know she loves stuff like uh, Sushi Go, and so you know even if she, it kind of falls flat with her, I'll just take it to work, and it'll be the perfect little you know lunchtime game. You said it was like thirty minutes. Is that what is that what you guys said? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I think they need to make more of these kind of games and. You know, I'm, I'm glad to see somebody who's got some real salt as a designer doing these nice, accessible two-player games. Yeah, it's nice to see a good one come through. Yeah, I, I own almost, I, I think except for like the few of the ones that have come out in the past two, three years, I own, I think, pretty much every Cosmos two-player game. And they are, there's a, a lot of really good ones, and there's a few in there that are kind of clunkers and kind of stinkers. But there's enough solid games in there that I can keep going back to that well, and uh, if I'm trying to play two-player I can pull something out, uh, like a Lost Cities or a, a Balloon Cup or something along those lines, or Jambo. And so, if this is if this sort of fits in that in that uh, that area, having a good two player game that's designed for two players is always something nice to have. Plus, we're all you know closet quilt people, quilters, quilters unite. For our next segment, we're going to talk about mass merchant retailers and the games that are available at mass merchant retailers like Walmart, Target, Toys R Us, uh, and the like. Mass merchant retailers hit an interesting space in uh, in gaming because it's what people generally see as the face of gaming. That, that when it comes down to when you discuss, we talk about playing games with somebody or talk about having board games, people are mostly familiar with what's available at mass merchant retailers. But within the last several years, there's been a real uptick in the number of designer and or gamers games that are available at uh, at mass merchant retailers. Ryan, you want to talk about the pictures you took or, or what what you've seen recently in your in, in your trips to mass merchant retailers? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I just went on a vacation and we hit a couple different towns. And like most people, I think we we had forgot stuff. So we were at Target's all the time picking up stuff to make up for it. And, you know, I don't know if anybody else is like this. Every time I'm in a Target, you know, I'll swing by their game section just to see, you know, what this district has picked up as, as something that they can sell. And um, this on this last trip, I was really kind of surprised because, you know, generally you go into these stores and eight years ago, you might see, I mean, were there any real hobby games as far as eight years ago in, in a Target? It was mostly Monopoly and Operation and actually terrible reprints of these older games that had, you know, the big plastic bits and stuff. But, you know, now you go in and you, and you look and they've got not only Ticket to Ride, but they usually have, you know, Ticket to Ride's expansions. That seems to be kind of a staple. Uh, the one I was at in Houston had Small World, Seven Wonders. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, which I think we talked about a little bit for the Bubba Geek show, but I think we might talk about more. 
you know, there's Dominion, you know, Magic the Gathering has got a new uh, version of HeroScape, I guess. That's it's not surprising to see that in mass market, but King of Tokyo and Amachi Koro, actually, I was kind of surprised to see. You know, it's just kind of different for me to be able to tell people about these games we play and to also tell them, hey, go go to your Target. You can, you, know, you don't have to borrow mine anymore. You can just go to Target and buy your own. But I was really surprised to see such a such a selection at Target. And, man, I know Target's kind of out there on their own as far as being in this space because Walmart doesn't have this same selection. Yeah, I've looked at my local Walmart at, at some of the games that they carry. And while they don't seem to have quite the breadth and depth that Target has had, at, and even, even my local Target doesn't have quite the breadth and the depth that you saw in uh, in Houston, there is a, a, a little bit more diversity of the games that, that one can get there. I remember telling some friends earlier this year that Walmart was stocking a reprint of Pie Face, which was an old ideal game that came out many, many years ago, but had a, had a small resurgence last fall. And I was surprised to see it on the shelf at Walmart. And then there are a few more like accessible games that, that pop up. Yeah, the last time I was at Walmart, they just had like the normal, the standbys, you know, the the monopolies, the saris, the you know things like that, and the gimmick games, you know, like don't break the ice and don't wake daddy and things like that. So I haven't been yeah. too impressed with Walmart selection, but Target seems to be hitting that market pretty hard, as well as uh, bookstores like Barnes and Noble and Books a Million. Yeah, the interesting thing, too, is if all of us are probably usually shopping in the Target around Christmas, it's interesting to see what you guys have seen. But the one aisle that is always just trashed and full of people is the board game aisle. And, you know, it's about time we start seeing people getting more of an option than, oh, I'm going to get Barbie Monopoly and I guess I'll get, you know, Transformers Monopoly for my son. Yeah, and uh, although I'm just now I'm, I'm browsing through some of the things that are available on Walmart.com, and there I see a lot of some stuff from Hasbro and, and Mattel that, that you see over and over again, and then it's mixed bag of toys and stuff that are mixed in here. But they also, through their online site, they sell Betrayal at the House on the Hill, Ticket to Ride, but from all of these, it looks like they're not stocked on shelves, but rather you can either have them shipped from the website to your home, or you can do ship to store and pick them up at the store. Yep, including Dungeon Roll. Dungeon Roll? Uh, tell me more about this game, Dungeon Roll. <laughs> also available at Barnes & Noble. Yep. <laughs> You're getting yeah, look, money out of Walmart for that? I am. Uh, Damn it. So looking at the shelf at Target, just looking at the little card games, there's Timeline, Quicks, Rolling America, Hanabi. You know, uh, I love Roy's Story Cubes. Catan, the dice game, is also decent. Right there, there's a bunch of good ones that are, you know, low price of entry, but what I would consider better games than some of the other, well, crap that's on that shelf, like Skipbo and Phase 10. Right. Yeah, by a lot. Well, and Hanabi's sitting there on that shelf, which, talk about a game that's not like anything else most people have played. You know, a game where you're, you're playing with your cards faced out to the rest of the other three players. Even the kids, you know, the young kids section is pretty well-rounded. You know, you, you see Labyrinth from Robinsberger that I was surprised to see the that Frog Goggles game that we saw at Essen. And, oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, were, we were laughing at that, right? That's probably a ridiculous game, and it's terrible. But putting on a set of goggles that closes your eyes for you without you having any control over it, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I was. I, I'm with you. I saw when I saw the on the shelf. Uh, I had seen that on the on the shelf, and yeah, that, I was surprised that that was something that actually got a U.S. printing and that it's uh, it's available at a mass merchant retailer. 
Yeah, the one the one game that really surprises me that I'm seeing in these pictures is 221B Baker Street. Like, I, I didn't even know that got a reprint. Yeah, I've seen that discussed a couple of places. And I guess, you know, for the for like what is involved in it, you know, the, the cases don't really get old for you. And if you haven't, if you never experienced them in the past, you can pick it up. And it, it's for the, for some people who have experience with like Clue and or other deduction games, I think it sort of fits well in that in that genre. Yeah, I thought they would have updated the box art on that one. <laughs> but I now, yeah, I'm looking right at the picture right now. I, I'm I'm right there with you. That is yeah, that is straight up the the old old box style. But if they'd have to pay a new artist, who knows? But no, I I am glad to see some of these games making their way to the mass retailers. It makes explaining my hobby to regular people easier. You might want to scale back on calling them regular people, Chris. You know, maybe don't uh, but regular don't, don't, don't people, drive wedges Scott. between us. <laughs> no. no. But it, you know, the the public at large, it makes it easier to describe the hobby, you know, the kinds of games that we play on a typical basis, you know, instead of answering the question, you know, oh, like, sorry, or Monopoly, you know. Just the fact that they're there means some, you know, people that we normally don't game with might be playing these things on a Friday night with their family. And then they'll, then that, you know, that association will hit them like, hey, I thought, you know, Chris plays games. This one was really fun. Let me go find out what, you know, what Chris thinks of it and if I like this one, maybe he's got another suggestion for me. So, you know, it's about time this stuff is, is hitting because, you know, we all know this and I, most, most of anybody listening knows this, but it's just some, you know, the, the time you spend playing a board game with friends and family is just some, it's way more quality than a lot of the, just having your face buried in an iPhone or other things. I was really surprised uh, because about a year and a half ago, I put in a large order of games and I you know, wanted to cross that $100 line so I could get free shipping. And I recommended to a friend of mine that she might enjoy Sushi Go. And I went ahead and I, I told her a little bit about the game. At that point, it was still newish. And I told her a little bit about the game. And I said that it was really cute. And I thought that she'd really enjoy it. And I got it and got it for her. And then three, five months later, I saw Sushi Go just on the shelf at Target. So it was it was interesting to see a game that, you know, in my previous knowledge, had only been available from a more or less a specialty retailer, make it to the point where it's on a on a shelf and probably available in several hundred stores to several thousand stores across the country. Hey, I'm looking at uh, the picture again, uh, and there's that Bell's game that we saw at Essen. I think you picked it up, didn't you, Chris? Yeah, and I came home, played it a few times, and made a prediction that we'd see it in retail stores here because it it fits that same package as Bananagrams and some of those others, and it's just right. fun and easy. It's got a gimmick, and it was there a couple months later. So yeah, I'm happy to see that one. That one's uh, my daughter and I enjoy that one, and other people have taken to it also. Yeah, it's a great little gimmick, you know, picking up you know singular colored bells with a magnet and chaining them together. That's you know that's it's a great game for kids. Okay, so let's uh, do the quick thought experiment, starting with Jeff. If you had a hundred bucks and you didn't have any of the games you own now, you had a hundred bucks and had to go to a mass merchant retailer and pick out some games that would fit roughly within that budget, what would you choose? I would get probably Ticket to Ride. I'm looking behind me. I have a selection of games picked out for an upcoming tabletop day here at my building, so most of this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, you know this is audio only, right? So we, don't come like, to my. <laughs> we we can see it. Anybody else who's listening cannot. All right, Dick. Uh, <laughs> Ticket to Ride, Machi Koro, and Codenames. I'd probably those three. Chris, how about you? Oh, I'd probably go with Catan, Ticket to Ride, and probably some of those games that I named earlier, those uh, those small games like Quix, Rolling America, Hanabi, Catan the Dice Game. That'd probably take me over 100 bucks. But yeah, um, I think you can start a decent collection at Target now, which is, you know, you couldn't say 
five years ago. True, true. Ryan, what about what would your selections be? Okay, I would totally grab Steve Harvey Family Feud, <laughs> Dirty Minds, Scategories, Taboo, Nasty Things. <laughs> <laughs> no. I would pick up that small world. You know, that for some reason that 221 Baker Street's calling to me. You know, the nostalgia for that old look. And then I, I, I agree with Chris. I think I'd probably pick up five or six of the, you know, card games, Timeline and Rolling America. And I, I never really got in on, in on the story cubes. So I, I, those have always kind of called to me. So that's probably what, and you know, then there's the Star Wars X-Wing that I'm not a huge fan of the Star Wars license anymore, but I mean, those models are cool looking. So I think that's actually over 150 on that. <laughs> so yeah. Story cubes is cool. Yeah. I think from just the, the pictures I'm looking at right now, I'd probably grab Sushi Go. I'd grab Hanabi and Timeline. I would say Ticket to Ride, uh, but you guys have already said Ticket to Ride, so I'm gonna I'll not put that under my my hundred dollar cap. But I would possibly grab Say Anything because that is one of my favorite. If I have to have a party game, I'll, I'll Say Anything is a is a preferred party game for me. And then maybe maybe round out with like uh, I I would probably go with Pandemic over Machi Koro just because I think it's it's a little heavier, not by much, but I don't know Machi Koro from the base can get a little it it, it since it uses a die roll mechanism. I don't think it uh I think it's a little too light. Come on, Scott. You looked really good in those Fool the Frog goggles. I did. You know, the Fool the Frog goggles. I was I was a rare Pepe for for a few moments. That was that was perfect. <laughs> hey, there's a there's also a mousetrap in here. Has anybody seen that? Is is that a decent reprint of mousetrap? I didn't like it. I didn't like the new setup at all. Yeah, I also well, Codenames is on there too, and on the dot. So those are interesting. Yeah, one of the things I was noticing is that you could start a decent uh, kids collection too. Yeah, because um, Labyrinth is on there, which is a good one. Um, I'm looking through the rest of them. Guess Who is actually a decent game for kids. Tapple, my daughter likes that. Blockus, Quirkle, she plays all those. Um, I think there's good stuff there for starting out and for adults. Man, Target. Seven Wonders. Gonna put the FLGS out of business. That's what I, I was gonna say. I, I, I was gonna say Seven Wonders, my, my previous. Oh, uh, too late now. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting point that you, that you bring up, Chris. I mean, what Chris, let's say you're a, a game shop owner. Does this help you or does this hurt you? I think it probably hurts you. I'm just thinking of the number of people that actually go that extra step, right? So they go to Target, they buy a few games, they enjoy it, they get them out every once in a while. That's it. They're done. Um, there are people, you know, like us who would go to that next step and then seek more of these games out, figure out where to get them and then go to that place. But uh, I look at like Barnes and Noble's selection, you know, they've got like, I don't know, at least 50 at any one time, maybe more uh, hobby games, you know, ones that I would see in my local game store and they have coupons all the time. And I don't know, I think hobby stores will continue to be what they've always been. And that's a place for magic and a place for comics and minis, you know, and the hardcore gamers. I'm not sure board games actually do much for local game stores. I, I'm, I'm with Chris on this. I think that, that uh, mass merchant retailers expanding their product lines probably ends up hurting the, the FLGS just because, as we just, we've discussed previously, five years ago, these games might not have been on the shelf. So if you had a minor interest in them, you were probably going to go to a hobby game shop and you were going to see what products they had on their shelves as it stands now with what we can what just what i'm looking at on the on the target shelf here as it was we just we all just discussed how how quickly we could go through a hundred dollars here if we were trying to build a game collection and that from what i see here on the shelves at target you could spend five six hundred dollars flesh out a game collection of 30 to 40 games and for a lot of people 30 to 40 games is all the further they're going to go in fact for some people 30 to 40 games is 
a lot of games, and that's where some people would think about trimming down because they feel like they have too many. You know, I could just just going down a shelf here, going Magic, Pandemic, King of Tokyo, Forbidden Island, Catan, Ticket to Ride, X Wing, Machikoro, Blocus, Quirkle. For some people, that's that would be that would be a substantial shelf of games, and that's more games than you probably play in a weekend. Right. It's quality. It's quality too. I mean, yeah, yeah, and that's and that's just looking at one set of shelves here. You know, you you add in the the other stuff of the small card games, whatever else. Somebody could spend all they needed to spend on and regard them as having a, a complete collection that gives them a fair bit of depth without ever having to leave the aisle at Target. Yeah, I think the and they've been over for a while, but the days of the local game store not supporting the community, not supporting certain you know subsets of gamers is over. You know they don't survive just by sitting around and having full retail for stuff. They need to have events. They need to be knowledgeable. They need to provide an extra level of service to their Magic players or their Minis players or have game days or something, you know, and that's how they survive, not with just having overabundance of stock anymore. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because Jeff and I, we, we know at least two game shop owners and in their day they had, you know, they had good business here or there. I think it's that's really kind of a an epidemic in game shops, like you said, Chris. I mean, a lot of times, five, six, ten years ago, you could just be the guy that had those games. You'd get your you know your core of misfits that would come in and and just talk shop all day and then play games. But anymore, if you're not providing those events and really trying to to make a quality game space, you're not going to survive. And in a way, uh, while I'm not you know I don't wish any of those game shops ill. I don't. I wouldn't mind seeing some of the fat cut out and getting one quality game shop per city that you know is worth driving twenty minutes to. Whether it's because you know it's also a coffee bar or you know they they have events and are or, or are a place where I can. It'd be kind of cool to go up to one of the game shops here and and run an outdoor survival game like what we play. So I, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic that I think game shops are finding themselves in now. Even mass market. Uh, retailers are starting to uh, to run events like Hastings. You can go into Hastings and they have magic tournaments all the time. I don't know about you guys, but Barnes and Noble down here, like at least probably once a month, once every two months, there's somebody in there like teaching a game, not a not a mass market game, but like something more. That's just Chris showing up wanting people to buy Dungeon Roll. <laughs> That's right. Uh... <laughs> buy those copies uh yeah i just saw something yesterday that was talking about barnes noble rolling out more of a a national policy instead of just being sort of a a, a local event uh, of of sort of game days that they're they're building sort of some sort of national policy on setting their stuff i'm trying to see if i can find the article well and the uh up in minneapolis you know, minneapolis has a couple great game stores the source is one and then fantasy flight built in their game event center and you know, from one of, one of my friends that lives up there, he says it's really well run and they've got a lot of different games being played, a lot of different, just odd games being played. Like, like right now they're playing Axis and Alloys, Axles and Alloys, just a, you know, a game, like a, almost like a role-playing game they play with Matchbox cars. So there, there's definitely examples out there of how to do that. And I think at that point you, uh, you can benefit from these mass retailers providing the interest and then you reaping the benefits of getting the gameplay and selling merch off of that. So here it is. I found the article Yeah, Barnes and Noble ran casual game gatherings in 57 or about 9% of its stores in March is expanding game events to the full 640 store chain. The first event, a tabletop gaming meetup will be held April 30th around five feature games, Machi Koro, Super fight, ticket to ride, Munchkin and Quirkle. So yeah, so that's uh so Barnes and Noble is getting getting deeper into the uh into the game arena. God, I've always wanted to play Munchkin at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> <laughs> You're out. I go home. 
All right, so after our discussion on Mass Merchant Retailers, let's talk a little bit about an older game. We're going to talk about Boomtown by Ian Livingstone. Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about Boomtown? Sure thing. So Boomtown by Ian Livingstone is for two to six players, ages 10 and up. Uh, it was made in West Germany, so that should tell you how old the game is. Yeah, it is um, not the Bruno for Duty minor game, right? No. That game is uh, more of a press-your-luck game. It's okay. Boomtown is, this version of Boomtown is superior. Unfortunately, there are only a thousand copies made of this, so you may have a little trouble picking up a copy. But uh, this is a game of speculation. So you are a property speculator in the 1950s. Each player has a number of houses in their color, and uh, the board is basically um, a subdivision from the 50s. So there are six different subdivisions laid out. There are places for your houses. There are places for small developments and large developments. And everybody takes the same turn, basically. So you go around and you do two rounds of putting houses in neighborhoods. Then you go around and put down small developments. And these small developments have uh, modifiers on them, anywhere from plus three to minus three on the small ones and um, you show where you're going to, what you're going to place and where you're going to place it. And then all the players have an opportunity uh, to veto once per round. Um, once all those are laid down, you uh, lay two more houses and then you do a large development and those have a spread of minus six to positive six on them. And the same thing happens. Every player can veto once per round and, you only get one veto per round, so if you use it on the small one, you don't get to use it on the large. And the game just continues that way, and so there are lots of landmarks that get laid down, lots of jokes. You kind of decide what your strategy is in terms of where you're putting your houses and what kinds of things you're putting down and how you want to hurt the other players. And at the end of the game, the scoring is pretty simple. It's however many houses you have multiplied by the overall modifier of that particular neighborhood. So if it's been hit hard with a foundry and the abattoir and all kinds of terrible things, a prison um, in your neighborhood, then those houses are all going to be worth negative points. Whereas if they have a something like a croquet club and a duck other, pond. the duck pond, fancy things like that, then it's going to be worth positive points. It's, it's pretty fun. It's one of those kind of, I would consider it more like a beer and pretzels kind of game. You're kind of talking trash. You're convincing people not to screw with certain neighborhoods or they can get in on them. Yeah. You make jokes about putting the ballet school next to the strip club, you know, because those are the ones that dropped out. And it's just a good time. I really enjoy it. I played it first at BGG Con, gosh, four or five years ago, something like that. Played it. Uh, really enjoyed it. Hopped online immediately on BGG, saw one for sale and picked it up, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, I, you talked briefly about sort of building a narrative about the neighborhoods as you build them. I really like that aspect of it as well. When I've played games like Big City in the past, I tend to do that as well. I, I tend to think of a ongoing narrative as you build the game where you think about who might live in this neighborhood and and, uh, and how the businesses go together. I mean, in a very abstract sense, the game is really just sort of a, a very basic investing game because everybody has the same number of shares and you're putting shares into these investments that you haven't yet figured out how they're going to pay off. Or sometimes you do find out that they're paying off really Really well and so you so everybody just jumps on a neighborhood and and uh and and fills it all up but i like that nature of having all the pieces that fit together and so you have the neighborhood that like you said has the duck pond it has the woods and it has it has all these positive aspects to it but that might be right across the street from the neighborhood that has the foundry the, the jail the abattoir the graveyard and all of those things that that count against it and all of jeff's property indeed yeah well you uh you went into a neighborhood nobody wanted to go into and you invested very heavily it yeah, that's the good, that's what I like about the game because you know generally you're gonna you're gonna be forced to put 
houses into a neighborhood that's going to score negative. And so it's a timing game at that point. But like you guys said, I mean, the, the fun part about it, being an older game, there's just, I mean, you're not going to get a game nowadays with a Turkish bath in it or and they're not going to call it an abattoir or it just kind of, it is, it's really fun to kind of throw that stuff in there and, and make that narrative. Did I mention I have number three out of a thousand signed by Ian Livingstone? No, no, we, we, we hadn't heard the bragging yet, but, but I know yeah. it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> More, he doesn't know this, but Morgan wrote that on his game. While he was <laughs> Damn it. The interesting thing was, is being down at board game geek con, we get to, you get to share time with publishers and developers and stuff. And we're pretty good friends with some of the guys that, you know, used to work at Mayfair and we, we were petitioning really hard for them to, cause I think at, they, at one point they had a contract with uh, Livingstone. Was that, was that what it was, Scott? I have no idea about that. I, I I just remember us talking to them about them maybe going to Livingstone and seeing if they could get the rights to reprint it. I mean, it is 25 years later now, but I don't know that they ever had anything in place. Yeah, it's just one of the games that we've always kind of felt could have an interesting update. Yeah, really simple mechanics, and you know, it can, you can give it more of a modern twist or add a couple of things to it and simplify the scoring a little bit, and I think it's a pretty easy family game that people would enjoy. I don't even think scoring needs to be simplified that much. I think it's, like I said, it is more or less, it's a themed stock game. There's not, there's not that much going on with it. I mean, you know, it, 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 there's nothing complex going on with it, I guess, is that it's, while you're putting down things that have names, you're really only looking at, is it plus or is it minus, and what's the overall net of, of, uh, of what's in that, that neighborhood? So I don't even think it necessarily needs anything simplified. If anything, for, you know, to make things a little more spicy, I guess, you could add, you could add some sort of events to it, not necessarily like a take, take that kind of aspect, but, Something a little bit beyond just the vetoes, but other than yeah, that, because there's not enough take easy. that in Boomtown. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be interesting too. You know, we talked about this when we were talking about outdoor survival and and you know national park themes, but the city of Chicago or the city of Kansas City. You know, you you could make the positive things in the game, you know, location specific, and you know becomes more sought after by people in that area or people that love those towns you know you you obviously wouldn't want to do like salina kansas but you know new york you know miami stuff like that you know those could be add-ons for the game right why you gotta hate on salina what's salina ever why is there nothing but abattoirs in this town (laughs) (laughs) abattoirs ballerina schools and strip clubs that's pretty much that's wichita sorry i kid i you don't kid So yes, Boomtown. Pick it up if you can find it. Otherwise, beg some company to make it again. (laughs) So that brings us to our hypothetical for this episode. Uh, What game designer would you pick to sit down with for an evening of games? Ryan, let's start with you. No, so I would actually really enjoy sitting down with you guys and... um, Am I blanking on his name now? Um, Chris Dunn. No. Um, I think we were all supposed to say, well, I would love to game with Chris Darden. Oh, <laughs> oh. Uh, oh no. Um, I'd like to sit down with you guys uh, and Martin Wallace and play brass. Um, I, that's a game that I've, I really enjoyed. I played it, I think twice only I own it. And I, I tend to like Martin Wallace games as, as, you know, the tight economic games that they are. And I, you know, it'd be interesting to see, watch him, you know, play his own game. That's who I would pick. Gotcha. Jeff? Uh, I would pick uh, Rainier Canicia. I've just always like enjoyed his games, even not knowing that he was the designer on some of them. Like One of my favorite memories of the Rainier game was uh, playing Easy Come, Easy Go, which is just basically a kind of a Yahtzee-type game, but you have these little cards, and 
you're trying to collect them first person to three if they have three at the beginning of their next turn wins but you can like it's kind of a push pull thing you can steal them from your opponents just fun little quick game just you know lost cities lord of the rings confrontation just games like that i just always dug his stuff i got you chris i'd have to say what would you like to sit down for uh, an evening of games with chris darden (laughs) do that all all the time I would have to say Sid Saxon would be who I'd want to game with. You know, acquire, can't stop, yo. Just um, uh, I read through a gamut of games from time to time, which is his uh, book of just all kinds of little mini games that he made up. And just, you know, he's one of the early guys who really started exploring the hobby and different things within it. And and one of the better known, well, uh, one of the better known American designers also. So. I just really enjoy, you know, his games and his take and the simplicity that he put together with that. So I think that would be a good experience. My answer is a, is a half cheat because I have I have played games with uh, with Freedom and Frieza. Oh God! <laughs> uh, oh, wow! <laughs> I, I thought it was gonna be Richard Garfield there for a second. Jesus! Uh, hey, don't trip on those drop names. I'm gonna have to re- I'm gonna start that one again. Um, no, you need to keep that in. Uh, no, I'm. I'm I'm saying that, but I just don't need, don't need you guys to berate me as I say it. No, no, we, we want that in. <laughs> Mine's a little bit of a half cheat because I would have to say uh, Freedom and Frieza because I actually I have played games with him once. Uh, although I don't think that he likes me very well because uh, I don't uh, I, I I I tend to be a little foul mouth table, and uh, I, I don't think he likes that as much. But uh, I've played a couple of games with him. I haven't played any of his games with him because that would just be a little weird. But I think that, that his perspective on gaming would probably be pretty fun to play some stuff. I don't know if I'd want to play like Power Grid or or uh, or Copycat or or any of his other stuff with him. But uh, but playing a couple of other, uh, having played a couple of games with him, I think it'd be pretty fun to game with. I thought we played Copycat with him, didn't we? I can't remember if we played Copycat with him or if he just taught us Copycat. No, I think he played with us. Well, then there you go. Then maybe I have played Copycat with him already. I don't yeah. remember. I mean, it was very much in the vein of he was bearing with us because he, you know, as Chris can attest, you play your own games way too much. Yeah, that is true. That and uh, and also having played, having having talked to him and played with him a couple of times, he taught all of us a very valuable lesson about about gaming, and that's when you get done playing, uh, don't spend any time putting the game away if it's not very good. Just shove it all in the box. If it's if it's that good, next time you play it, you'll put all the pieces, you'll, you'll organize it all again. Not true. You do mind putting the at least I did with Suburbia. That sucked. <laughs> so we did that. We after a game of Suburbia, we just swept, swept it all into the box and it took me 20 minutes to sort that stuff out. Meanwhile, people were getting pissed and like two people were already like two beers deep. Well, Still a good time. It was, it was it was worth it apparently, right? Yeah. I'm gonna go no on that. I mean, it's worth it for you to to reorganize it and to play it. Otherwise, if it yeah. if it had been too much of a hassle, you you just put the box away and said we're never playing this again. I disagree completely. Also, ah, uh, sure. It's terrible. It's a terrible idea. You have everything out. You can organize it quickly, put it in bags, and have it ready to go next time. Excellent. Well, I think we had a, a very good discussion on this episode. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Dead of Winter. We're going to have a side discussion about gaming journals. And Jeff is going to talk to us about Downfall of Pompeii. So for for the ULP podcast, I'm Scott Reed. I'm at Ludography Scott on Twitter. I'm Ryan Johnson. I'm at Old River Studios on Twitter. 
I'm Chris Darden at CB Darden on Twitter. I'm Jeff Rupert. I am at Ludography Jeff on Twitter. Uh, this podcast has been a production of uh, Ludography.net. Ludography, we can't sell out because nobody's buying. Thanks so much, everybody. Boomtown. Close. Boomtown. Boomtown. Games, games, games. Games. <laughs> games. <laughs>